Hi, I'm Irwin McManus. I want to welcome you to the Mosaic Podcast. I want to also bring you into some exciting things that are happening here. If you go to the Mosaic app, you will learn about our conference coming up this year, about MSC's new album and their tour across the country. And you can learn how to connect and be more involved in Mosaic in so many different ways. And by the way, we now have the Mosaic YouTube channel. And you can go access not only these talks, but other fresh and new materials that are being created specifically for that channel. And so if you want to be connected in a richer and fuller way, uh, not only be a part of the podcast, get to the Mosaic app and get to the channel, and we'll see you there. So we continue together life's toughest questions. Last week, we looked together at the big question, is truth dead? And from the cover of Time Magazine, we saw the connection of the article in the 1960s, is God dead? We saw this interesting relationship between the existence of God And the reality of truth. Because truth is always connected to trust. Truth exists because God can be trusted. Which leads us, I think, really smoothly, elegantly, powerfully, painfully into tonight's question. Because many times we ask the question, does God exist? But really the question behind the question is, does God care? So many times we stop believing in God because we're convinced God does not believe in us. Or we stop caring about God because we're convinced that God does not care about us. And then the big question, outside of why is this happening to me, which is the personal question, is how is it possible for a loving God to allow so much suffering in the world? The timing is almost astonishing in that we are in the 25-year anniversary of the L.A. riots. 25 years ago, Kim and I packed up Aaron and Mariah, and we moved across the country and came here to L.A. We were here 30 days when the L.A. riots broke out. I remember I was out of state when they first erupted. And Kim called me, and I saw the riots on television, flew in, but could not get into LAX, so I flew into Ontario, drove into the city. And I remember getting to the house when we were living in Alhambra, and Aaron was just a little boy, and I said, where are the fires? And he said, I can show you, Daddy. And he led me by the hand into the house and pointed to the television, because he thought that's where the fires were taking place. And so probably against Kim's um, wishes, I took Aaron down into the city so that he could understand what was going on, that it was humanity at war with itself. We look back now, 25 years later, after the the verdict of the Rodney King trial, where four officers were acquitted of his beating, and we look back now and know there are 53 deaths, 2,383 injuries, 12,000 111 arrests, 1,000 buildings destroyed or damaged, and over a billion dollars worth of property damage, and there was a fire set every minute over those five days. And we looked at that moment and wonder what in the world is going on? And if you stop and ask the question to God, you go, God, how in the world can you allow this to happen? And I think it's a fair question. When we step back and look at the human condition, when we look at the human story, you have to wonder if there's a God, why is he allowing this to happen? 
Why doesn't he do something about this? And on a personal level, haven't you ever been in that place in your own life where you've prayed or cried out to God and asked him to intervene to help and you felt powerless and helpless in a moment and God just seemed to be absent? And sometimes, because we don't understand who God is, we begin to project on him motives that are really more reflective of the human heart. Have you ever missed an important moment in a movie? Uh, you guys don't really know what long movies are like. You, you, you guys really have short films that you call feature films. I grew up when movies lasted for hours. But even now, it can get tricky. Because I, I don't like going in late. Because I've gone in late to a movie. I used to go to movies with people who did not respect the starting times. So I don't go with them anymore. Because if you miss the first three, four, five minutes, you, you miss the entire setup of the film, then you're coming in, you're trying to catch up the whole time, you don't know what's going on. Have you ever had that happen to you where you thought, what's happening? Who's the main character? Somebody just died, but I don't know who it was. What, what is going on? And you, you realize you missed the first three minutes and the whole story makes no sense at all. But to me, the worst part is when you're in a really great movie and you drank way too much Diet Coke. <laughs> and you're just trying to hold on. For that, for that sleepy moment where the director loved the scene just a little bit too much so you could run. And, and if you've ever gone to the arc light, they never put the bathrooms near the theaters. I, I don't know what they're thinking. Let's punish them. The bathrooms are somewhere over some obstacles and barricades and a river. So I'm running to the bathroom and I run back as fast as I can, but still keeping my dignity. And I get back into the seat, and everything's changed. I missed the scene that actually mattered. And then you don't even understand there was a plot twist in that moment. And nobody, and you're like, what happened, what happened? Shh. <laughs> I wonder if it's that we're trying to understand life by watching five minutes of the middle of a feature film. With no understanding what happened before and what happens after. And we try to give it our own context and our own explanation. Which is why I, I love this moment in John chapter 11. Because it, it's almost a microcosm of human history. If we look at John chapter 11 and see the interaction, the relationship between Jesus and the people in this moment. We'll begin to have a picture of the human struggle with how could a loving God allow us to have so much pain and go through so much suffering. John 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. He needs to tell you which Mary it is because there were so many Marys. So the sister sent word to Jesus Lord, the one you love is sick. I think this is an important starting point. Because everything that comes after this, what John wants us to understand is that he's entering into the story of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And Lazarus is sick and he's going to die. Well, of course, we don't know that yet. But we know that he's in a critical situation, a critical moment of his life. And John wants us to know that everything that happens after this must be understood and interpreted through this one reality. Lord, the one you love is sick. The the person that, that you hold dear to you, this friend that you have that's closer than a brother Lazarus, he's sick and he needs you. 
And after he makes this declaration, Lord, the one you love is sick, he goes on to say, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. And this is powerful language. Jesus is saying there's something bigger going on than you understand. He's saying you're, you're, you're trapped inside of the, the minute perspective of a person who's locked into time and space. And I want you to know there's something bigger. There's a grander story taking place that you can't see. And then John reinforces the motive of God in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It's almost as if he knows what's about to happen is going to confuse us about who Jesus is. That what's about to happen is going to confuse us about the motive of God, the intention of God. And we might actually begin to question Jesus' character. So he wants us to know not only... Did they know that Jesus loved Lazarus? Lord, the one that you love is sick. Everybody knew he loved them. But, he, but John goes on, I want you to know, Jesus loved Martha, and he loved Mary, and he loved Lazarus. So, verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now, when I read that, I go, no, 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 that, that can't be right. Because when you love somebody, and they need you, you go. You show up. You get there. And especially if someone is in a critical moment of their life. You go. You disrupt your life. You change your schedule. And you get there. And especially if it's someone that you love. Who cannot be helped by anyone except for you. You go. You get there. You change everything. Jesus just... Hung around for two more days. Even the way John writes this is, is, is frustrating. Jesus loved them. He heard he was dying, so he just stayed two more days. Can you imagine that? Who's the most important person in your life? Who loves you more than anyone in your world? Can you imagine calling them or having someone call them and say, she was just in a terrible accident. She's in ICU. We don't know if she's going to make it. We need you to come. Oh, I'm coming. But, but, I, but I have a roast in the oven. So I'm going to wait till my roast is done. You don't understand. This, this, is, this is your son. This is your daughter. This is your husband. This is your wife. This is your best friend. We just had, they just had a stroke. We rushed them to the hospital. They're, they're, they're on the bubble of survival. But you know, I, I have an appointment for a mani-pedi. And it's taken me weeks to get this. So when I'm done... I'll be over there. When you care about something, you move with urgency. And Jesus didn't go. Have you ever been angry with God because he didn't seem to show up? Here's a God, I need help now. I don't know about you, but I have issues that need to be attended to. And I'm on a schedule. It's called life. And I need God to act in my life right now. I don't need God acting later. You know what the problem is? We're having to interact with a God who's eternal. He doesn't see time the way I see. I need help now. God's God's now. It's so poetic to the Lord. A day is like a thousand years. No! (laughs) I need God to show up today. He hangs out for two more days. What would that communicate to everyone watching Jesus? 
See, I, I think what happens is that we cry out to God, we pray. Even when we barely believe, sometimes we get desperate enough, desperate enough to ask God for help. We've run out of options. We turn to God and nothing happens. And we lock that into our souls and go, even if God exists, it doesn't matter because he doesn't care. God's just moseying along through life while we're running for our lives. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Now he's ready to go. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. And yet you're going back? See, I think they were confused. If Jesus had acted the moment he heard Lazarus was sick, that he was dying, and said, we're going to go now, they could understand that. Because there's almost like a, a heart reaction. When you know someone needs you, you go and you face whatever danger's there. You face whatever challenge is there, you go in. But he waited two days, so it couldn't have been that urgent. So they're like, Lord, maybe you forgot. See, I think they thought when Jesus waited two days that he didn't want to go because he was worried about his own life. That maybe after two days, Jesus forgot that it was Judea, what it was like there. And then Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they will see by this world's light. It is a person, but it is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Doesn't Jesus say things in the most elegant and eloquent of ways? And you're like, what do you mean? I'm I'm thinking, Jesus is talking to fishermen, tax collectors, manual laborers, and and he's like waxing poetic. They're like, okay, got it. Walk in the day, don't fall. People will fall at night. We're with you, we think. And, and after he said this to them, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. See, I really resonate with Jesus. I love imagery and metaphor, and I, I, I don't like when you're so directed that you're telling a person exactly what you're thinking. His disciples said, Lord, well, if he's sleeping, he'll get better. I love that. Like, we don't need to go wake him up because we're going to die. So we don't want to go to Judea. If he's just sleeping, he'll just wake up in his own time. He doesn't really need you, Jesus. And, and it says Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep because they were dense. <laughs> then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, okay? <laughs> I tried to be a poet with you. Try to give you the beauty of my words, but I'm just going to lay it out. He's dead. <laughs> you go, okay, that changes the whole scenario. And... and and he says, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there. Wait a minute. Don't, don't put this on us, God. We die. You don't show up. You put it on us. For your sake. Wouldn't that be terrible? If God didn't show up in your life for someone else's sake, not even for yours. What if you're going through suffering and pain, and God's letting you go through it because there's someone else he's trying to help and going, I don't really need to be that instrument for someone else's life. I mean, someone went to Lazarus. Look, you got an option. Jesus can show up. And not let you die, or he can let you go through more suffering and pain so that others can actually learn who he is. Hmm. 
But for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. I love the next verse. Because there's something about Thomas. See, I, I think if Thomas lived in L.A. today, he would be a stand-up comic. Because Thomas, Thomas has a really unique view of life, a little cynical, a little jaded. Just tells the truth, and it's funny. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I love that. It's like, oh, like, forget it. Let's just go and just die because that's what's going to happen anyway. He's not going to listen. Just go and Lazarus is dead. Jesus is going to be dead. We're all going to be dead. Let's just go. I love that kind of optimism. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus was already in the tomb for four days. A little late. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Oh, by the way, that word loss is important. See, there is no suffering unless there is loss. And we only experience loss when there's love. Stop and think about why we suffer as humans. I can only find a few categories. There might be more, but I think these will cover most of the reasons we suffer. I think category number one, we suffer because we make bad choices. We blame God for them sometimes. That's why it's always handy to have God. But the reality is that most of your pain and suffering and mine could be eliminated, if not alleviated at least, if we just made better choices. Now I look at my life, and most of my suffering is the result of the bad choices I've made. And, and, and it's frustrating. Because I want to be able to make my bad choices, and I want God to give me good outcomes. And that gives me a reason and a right to be angry with God. Because it needs to stop letting me experience the consequence of my choice. I mean, the reality is that we suffer in large part because we make bad choices. And here's the reality. Maybe you've heard this that Jesus died for your sins. But here's what I've discovered in a very practical way. Jesus may have died for your sins, but he didn't seem to die for your stupidity. (laughs) You have to die to that all by yourself. (laughs) That God can't stop us from making stupid choices. When was the last time you experienced so much pain and so much suffering? The wounding was so deep, you realize it's because you made the wrong choices in your life. That's category number one. So if you want to eliminate suffering in your life, stop making bad choices. Category number two is a little trickier. We suffer not just because we make bad choices, but we suffer because other people make bad choices that affect our lives. It's you. You're my problem. You're going to make bad choices, and it's going to have an effect on my life. And I'm going to make bad choices that's going to have an effect on your life. And here's why I look at my life. I go, as an adult, most of my suffering is a result of my bad choices. But as a kid, most of my suffering is a result of someone else's bad choices. That wounded me. That left me broken. And then, I, and then I let them blur together. And I let other people's bad choices create momentum. And I ended up making the same bad choices that they made. And I let their bad choices mark me, define me, and give me my identity. Think about how much suffering would have gone in your life if you did not suffer because of the bad choices other people made that hurt you. 
Let's flip this around the other way. How much suffering in the world could you eliminate if you just stopped making choices that hurt other people? Those are the two categories that stand out to me the most. The third category are, are not bad choices we make or bad choices other p- people make that hurt us, but, but bad things that happen that we can't seem to avoid. Can we just be honest? Bad stuff happens. Sometimes we just call it fate or we call it nature. I mean, who would have known that you were standing there and an avalanche came? Bad timing. Who would have known that, that you were genetically predisposed to have cancer? Who would have known that breathing in that oxygen was going to destroy your lungs? There's so many things that happen, and you didn't choose it. It just happened to you. The people in Bandiachi, they did not do anything that allowed that tsunami to come destroy their world. Nature just seemed to have it out for them. Have you ever felt like fate was just against you? You didn't get the job. You didn't get the part. You didn't get the girl. You didn't get the life. You didn't get the dream. And you're like, what is fighting against me? And I, I think it's interesting. When you feel like fate and creation and the universe is against you, you get mad at God. People never get mad at the universe. I, I hear people all the time talking. The universe only gets talked about in, in the warmest terms. Right? You know, the universe is for you. And the universe is, you know, working in your direction, and the universe is leveraging your success. No one ever says, the universe is after me! (laughs) Wouldn't that be terrifying? Take a walk tonight. Look at the stars. Soak in creation and know they're coming! Your life is just a horror film. <laughs> and the language that the universe is for you, I want you to know something. The universe is not for you. God is for you, and he created the universe. <laughs> and so in that sense, you're right. The universe is for you. Because God created the universe to be for you. But we can't escape the fact that sometimes bad things just happen. And they don't seem to make any sense to us. And this is one thing that I've realized, is that it is not suffering that destroys us. It's the lack of meaning in our suffering. When something terrible happens in your life and it doesn't make any sense at all, and you can't figure out why it had to happen to you, that's when your soul finds itself drowning in meaninglessness. And we cry out, God, why is this happening to me? And then there's a fourth category. It gets worse. The fourth category is not the bad choices we make or the bad choices other people make that affect us or the bad things that happen that we just happen to be there. The fourth area is that bad things happen to people when they make good choices. And that, like, really? See, there's no way out. You make bad choices, you're going to suffer. But here it is. You make good choices, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer even when you do the right thing. In fact, some of you have suffered because you did the right thing. Some of you lost the job because you made the right choice. You lost the girl because you made the right choice. You lost the future because you made the right choice. So you didn't lose yourself. But let me tell you, I know, it's hard to applaud about suffering. You go, yeah, bring it on! I want to shift my suffering from the bad choices I make to suffering for the good choices I make. Let me tell you what will happen. 
The moment you start suffering for the good choices you make, it brings meaning to your suffering. And so Jesus saw them, and he moved toward them because they had lost their brother. They were overwhelmed with sorrow and with pain. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home, I think, because she was angry with Jesus, because he disappointed her, because he didn't show up. Lord... Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think that's the question all of us have for God in some way at some point in our life. Lord, if you had been here, if you had shown up, God, if you had answered my prayer, this would not have happened. That's incredible faith. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I love how then she adds a caveat. She says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Like, I know if you had been here... He would not have died, but you're here now. And if you ask, your father will give you whatever you ask. And so Jesus responds to her, your brother will rise again. I love that. He knew exactly what she wanted. Her brother to live. He goes, your brother will rise again. It wasn't really that helpful to her. She answered, well, I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection of the last day. But he's dead now. Right? And then Jesus says, no, no, you think the resurrection is a place or a time in the future. You need to know the resurrection is a person in front of you. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? How can you believe this? You know what Jesus is doing? He's connecting together tragedy and beauty, death and life, suffering and joy. Saying they, they don't exist apart from each other. You see, God introduced the story of beauty, but we introduced the story of tragedy. God is the one who brought to us the story of hope, but we brought the story of suffering. Instead of running from us, God ran to us. And you think, why would God allow us to live in a world where there's so much suffering? See, and people will say to me, well, I can't believe God exists because if God existed, he would not allow the suffering. How could you stop it? Human suffering is like an avalanche. An avalanche of all the consequences of all our bad choices as a human race. How do you stop the avalanche of human suffering when we are primarily the conduits and causes of it? In fact, it's interesting because when people say, I can't believe in God because there's suffering in the world. I go, okay, you're right. There's no God. Is the suffering gone? Nope, suffering's still here. So now there's no God, but there's still suffering. So now we can't blame God because he doesn't exist. So if God doesn't exist and he cannot be blamed for our suffering, then who's to blame for our suffering? Oh, us. So then is it possible... Since we're responsible for human suffering because God does not exist. So he can't be responsible because it doesn't exist. But we exist, so we're responsible. So is it possible we're responsible for suffering and God does exist? And he's absolutely brokenhearted that we've made choices that have led us to such suffering. And livid. 
that we would cause so much suffering. So why would God allow us to live in a world with suffering? And here's, I think, a really painful truth. Have you ever been brokenhearted? Have you? Have you ever come to realize that the only person that can break your heart is the person you've given your heart to? Here's, here's the dilemma. We want love, but we do not want pain. But the only ones that can cause us pain are the ones we love. The only person who can ever break your heart is the one who has your heart. See, suffering is not the enemy of love. It is the result of love. Because God suffers because he loves us. See, Jesus said all this is happening so that God can be glorified in a greater way. But the driving narrative of this is love. And sometimes we confuse the two. See, God is going to do something that makes the tragedy beautiful. But God is not the God of the tragedy. He's the God of the beauty. And I want you to realize something. The only reason we can create suffering and the only reason we experience suffering is because God is a God of love. Because if God was only interested in glorifying himself, he would have never given us free will. He would have made us simply reflections of his power and beauty like a sunflower or a sunrise. But a sunflower or a sunrise cannot experience love. It cannot receive love, nor can it give it. The only way that you and I can ever love is to have freedom. So when God chose to create us out of love so that we could be recipients and conduits of love, he created the space for suffering. Because when you love, you give freedom. And when you give freedom, we can choose to heal or to hurt, to build or to destroy, to create or to corrupt. Jesus loved Lazarus. He loved Martha and Mary. And he let him die because he understood that there was a bigger story being told. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. It's funny, it doesn't record Jesus ever asking for her. I think Martha hoped that Mary had more influence with Jesus and could maybe get Jesus to do something she could not get him to do. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not entered yet the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed that she got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even with Jesus being present, that still is the question, Lord, where were you? Why did you let this happen? See, the question really isn't, does God exist? The question is, does God care? 
And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. I love this about God. God is moved by our pain. He is moved by our sorrow. He is troubled by our suffering. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then there's verse 35. The shortest verse in all the scriptures that says the most. Just two words. Jesus wept. And I want you to know that God weeps over us. That he weeps over you. That his heart is broken in your suffering. Because he loves you. And then the Jews said, and here's the theme. John brings it right back. See how he loved him. This is what you need to hear. No matter what you're going through. No matter how much pain you've had to bear. No matter how many times in your life you felt that you cried out to God and he did not answer or you thought that God was going to act and it seems like he didn't show up. I want you to know that no matter what you've ever gathered as the, as the evidence against God, I want you to know that God has always loved you. He has only one motive towards you and it is love. He has one intention for you and it is love. God is driven by love, created you for love. But he understands that in a universe, in a reality, in a world where freedom has been given to us so that we could receive love and give love, he cannot block from us our suffering, but must choose to meet us in our suffering. In verse 37, he goes on, but some of them said, could not he have opened the eyes, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind, man? have kept this man from dying. They knew he made the blind see, but they still questioned who he was and his motives for what he did. You know what's hard? Wouldn't it be great if all of us, if God answered one person's prayer, that all of us would just celebrate that? But we don't. Somebody goes, God answered my prayer. God gave me the job. God gave me the promotion. Which job? You know, that, that job over there at Paramount, you know, executive vice president, he gave you that job. Yeah, that was the job I applied for. What kind of experience? I don't have any experience. It was just a miracle. God just showed up. Man, I was selling coffee last week. Now I'm the EVP at Paramount. God is so good. Like, I've been working at Paramount for 12 years, man. As an associate producer, and I started as a runner. Have you ever felt like life is just unfair? It just doesn't really inspire us sometimes when other people seem to have God act on their behalf. It almost makes God more distant to us. And they asked, couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And the answer is yes, he could have. But that's because you only saw the five minutes of the movie in the middle and you don't understand the beginning and the end. And that's where I stop. Before Jesus calls out Lazarus' name, before he tells him to come up and come out to arise. You see, we're in the middle of the story. And as much as we want to believe it, as much as we, we have faith, we're not at the other side of the story. We're in the middle of the story where we're wondering if God's going to show up and which time he's going to show up and what he's going to choose to do. And you... 
You're going to have to make a decision about God's character and intention towards you. Because it's not what you go through that's going to crush your soul. It's how you interpret who God is through what you go through. And I, I know some people say, yeah, well, that's the problem is that I, I don't like the Old Testament God. I like the New Testament God. In fact, people say, I like Jesus. I don't like God. They go, well, no, Jesus is God. Well, yeah, but he's the new God. He's like, he's a new version of God. And people tell me, I don't like the Old Testament God. It's almost like after God wrote Malachi, he went into therapy. They're like, I have like anger issues, you know? And I just, I need to like work this through. I'm really, really angry with the human race. I got a flood thing behind me. You know, I got issues. But 400 years later, a guy came back and goes, I'm Jesus. I'm chill. Like, you know, it's like hipster God. But I want you to hear what the people who knew God in the Old Testament said about God. In Psalm 145, 8, it says this. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. This is not about Jesus. This is about the God of the Old Testament. See, God has always been the God of love. God has always been gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Let that sink in and seep in. Jesus is love because God has always been love. But when you step into human history that's so filled with hate and violence, you can project your own heart on God. In Jeremiah 31.3, God says about himself, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. There's some of you, you know that God's after you, but not in a bad way. He's after you in the best of ways. You're running from God, but God is chasing after you. But I want you to know as fast as you can run, fueled by your fear, God's love will chase you faster than you can run. Because love is faster than fear. If you've never heard God speak to you, I want you to hear God speak to you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. In Hosea chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, God uses the the metaphor of, of a mother or father who holds their child. It says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they could not realize it was I who healed them. I was walking with them. I was holding their hand, but they thought they were walking on their own. They kept wounding themselves, but I kept healing them. But they couldn't realize it was me. He goes on to say, I led them, I led them with cords of human kindness. See, God is not a malevolent dictator trying to make you a puppet or a robot. God leads you with the cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I think sometimes we use language as if God makes us a slave and imprisons us and steals life from us. I want to be bound to the ties of love. If God is love, I want to be strapped to his very heart and led by his kindness. It says, to them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and I bent down to feed them. 
We so misrepresented God. Do you remember when, when Moses and God had that brief interaction in the, in the desert? God showed up in the burning bush. Moses was a little surprised. God said, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground because everywhere God is is holy. And then God has a conversation with Moses. Do you remember how it went down? Moses said, God, there you are. I've been wandering in this desert for 40 years looking for you. You need to step up and be God. Your people are down there and they're slaves to Egypt crying out to you and you're doing nothing. Why would you allow us to suffer like this? Do you remember that? Except it didn't go down like that. It was the opposite. It was God encountering Moses and confronting Moses saying, I have heard the cries of my people. And I'm going to act and deliver them and you're going to go on my behalf. See, I think sometimes we get confused who the hero of the story is. It's God who hears your cry. It's God who has moved towards you. And when a person comes to bring you healing and help, let me tell you, it is God who is moving them to your your salvation. (laughs) I I was asked, I think it was 2013, to look at the script that um, Ridley Scott was working on. I love Ridley Scott. He's one of my favorite directors. And I was so honored and excited. And they said, he's doing a movie called Exodus, Gods and Kings. And I said, well, you know, I, I love Wrigley and I, and I love the scriptures. So, man, I'm in. So they sent me the script and asked me to, to give them notes. And, and I, I could see there was, like some, there was some like fundamental issues. Not, not in the theology, but just in, in the story. Because I, I could tell that the writer did not like God. I said, well, are Christians going to have a hard time with God being represented as a boy? I said, that's not going to be really the problem. Christians are also intuitive and artistic, and they can get that. And you know, his name is Malik, and, and I think they can get over that. And they said, you think we can get over that? I said, I, I think you can. The problem you can't get over is that God is just not a good guy. He's just a really bad person. And, and, and in the way the story was written, Moses slips and falls, hits his head against a stone, and then God shows up as a hallucination. I said, that might create a little bit of turmoil in people who actually believe in God. I said, but okay, let's keep God as a hallucination. Maybe what you could do is, is he kind of sees God right before he hits the rock. And we don't know if it's God or just his imagination. That makes it even more interesting. But what I think you need to do, though, is rethink why God exists. I said, in fact, your writer's an atheist, isn't he? And he paused and said, yeah, how'd you know? He said, oh, I can read it. Because Moses never comes to believe. Because the writer is really Moses in the story. But, but here's the dilemma, though. All right, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to try to convince you there is a God. I mean, I might. But, but, I, I'm, not, you know, I, but I, I'm going to accept that there is no God, that God is a projection of human ideals, that God is a projection of the human subconscious. Why would we create God? Why, why would we create God if he does not exist? We would only create God because, well, our conscience is telling us that we should be more noble, but we're not. Or more honorable, and we're not. Or more courageous, and we're not. Our conscience is telling us we shouldn't have killed or lied or stolen. And so we create, we project, we create this, this idea we call God. So God is really the personification of the best of humanity. So why would you create a God character who is actually the worst of us? That's not called God. And then I said, remember the movie Braveheart? I should have said Gladiator. 
but I said Braveheart. Remember in Braveheart you have Robert the Bruce and William Wallace? And Robert the Bruce is the one who was born to lead. He was supposed to lead. He was entrusted with that responsibility, but he was a coward. And William Wallace was not really supposed to lead, but he saw that the people needed to be set free. There was an enemy that needed to be conquered. And so he stepped into that moment. And in many ways, his entire life journey was to help Robert the Bruce become the man he was born to be. I said, you see, God is William Wallace. He's the good guy. And we are Robert the Bruce. We're the ones who are indifferent and fearful. And God steps into the story to pull out the hero in us. So this is the way the story should be told. If God is just a construct of our psychological need, God should be what keeps inspiring him to step past his fear into courage, to step past himself into servanthood. God should be the ideal that keeps calling him up. See, I, I think we get angry with God because we want to blame him for the condition that we've created. And we should be grateful that God is more patient with us. Because when we're mad with God, say, God, why would you let this happen to me? I think you need to listen. Because I think God's going, why would you let this happen to you? I created you for more than this. I created you for love, not war. I created you for justice, not injustice. I created you for compassion. I created you for kindness. I created you as humans reflecting my image and likeness. Look what you've done with what I've given you. If I were God, I'd be angry that we've been entrusted with so much and have done so little. I I remember when I was younger, my mom was always on a spiritual search. And we brought a Buddha home. We became Buddhists for a while. She started listening to Rabbi Harold Krishner, who um, later wrote a book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. She became Jewish for a season. I mean, she, you know, just really always searching, searching for meaning, searching for God. But I remember the day that there was an earthquake in Managua, Nicaragua. My, my mom never, I feel like, just exposed her heart just completely to us, was always very careful. Remember that day, I felt as if I saw into her soul. I saw such pain and disappointment in God. She said, I just cannot believe that there's a God and he would allow such senseless destruction and suffering like this. I remember that was the day she became a deist when she decided that maybe God exists, but he doesn't care. Maybe he created everything, but he is detached from our experience. It's kind of ironic that that same woman later led us all on a path to find Jesus. And she was in such a painful place in her life. Her husband had dementia and Alzheimer's. Her parents were in their 90s, and they moved from El Salvador to stay with her so she could take care of them. My grandmother had not eaten a piece of solid food in, I think, up to two months My grandfather was holding on for the fear of death, not the hope of life. My mom would have to feed her husband and shower him and change him. And then she slipped and fell and damaged her hip, was in a hospital and 
She did not allow herself to stay to recover because the three of them would have literally starved to death if she wasn't there to take care of them. I just happened to call her in this moment. I said, Mom, how are you doing? And I expected her just to have a moment to vent. I think it would have been fair. I think it would have been okay for her to say, why would God do this to me? Why would he allow me to go through so much suffering? Why, why would God not intervene? But she didn't say any of that. You know what she said to me? She said, God must really love me to allow me such great suffering. That's what love does. It steps into suffering. I think she was projecting that on God. I think the truth was that she was expressing the greatest love by stepping into their suffering. And that's what Jesus did. We want God to show us a way out of suffering. But Jesus instead showed us a way through. Jesus came into human history. God himself took on flesh and blood allowed himself to be beaten and brutalized, crucified on a cross, taking on the greatest suffering. Jesus did not run from the suffering. He leaned into the suffering. So that when you suffer, so when you experience wounding and pain, when you feel your soul is broken, and when you're ready to cry out and say, God, why? You can know that God is the God who steps into our suffering to meet us there so that we can know, we can rise above the pain, we can make it through the suffering, we can be healed from our wounds because he is the God who has taken our wounds and through his wounds, we are healed. That's who Jesus is. He has come to meet you in your pain, to meet you in your disappointment, to meet you in your suffering. Man, who could have ever imagined a God like this who would join us in our suffering, who would bear the weight of the world on himself, who would carry the consequence of sin and allow himself to be the sacrifice for the avalanche that we've created of brokenness and then be buried and on the third day rise so that all of us could know that it's not just one name, Lazarus, that he would call out from the dead and that the way you measure time is not the way God measures time. You may think he didn't show up, but I'm telling you, God is never late. He is waiting for that moment where you will know him most fully, most powerfully, most beautifully. And maybe that moment is right now. Thank you so much for joining us on the Mosaic Podcast. I want to encourage you to take the message you've just received, allow it to go deeply into your soul, to allow Jesus to do the deep work that only he can do. And I also want to encourage you to be a part of what we're doing here at Mosaic, to go to the Mosaic app and to become a part of the Mosaic Foundation, to become a regular giver and investor and bringing this message across the world. I want to thank you so much for being here with us. God bless you.